Welcome back to The Plane Crash Diaries. I'm your pilot and host, Desmond Latham. This week, we'll feature two accidents from the early 1920s that changed rules. The first is a mid-air collision that took place in April 1922 over Picardy in France, and the second was the response to an investigation into a crash of a passenger plane flying between London and Manchester in England. As we'll hear, both crashes led to new air regulations and rules that we still use today. These include a rule of keeping to the right, the introduction of new air routes, and another rule allowing for transparency in the reporting of air accidents. In our section at the end of this podcast, The History Of, I'll cover the concepts of the keep to the right rule, how air routes work, and transparency in aviation. But first, let's head back to 1922 and France. Flying was in its infancy after the First World War, and 1922 was an exciting time to be alive. Pilots were the astronauts of their age and were idolised, and the rich and famous began to use these wonders of modern invention, the aeroplane. Folks had survived the First World War and then the massive influenza epidemic afterwards that killed 17 million people. So the second decade of the 20th century became known as the Roaring Twenties. The music was effervescent, the parties were wild. Jazz, ragtime music was in the dance halls, and the advent of radio and ready availability of phonograph records meant even those in remote locations were listening to the latest music very much as they do today. But in 1922, it was considered a unique time, openness, freedom, growth and technical development like heavier-than-air machines. Aviators were trying to break new records every month. No one had flown across the Atlantic Ocean yet. Public dance halls, clubs, tea rooms opened in the cities. Strangely named black dancers inspired by African-style dance moves like the shimmy, the turkey trot, the buzzard lope, chicken scratch, monkey glide and the bunny hug were adopted by the general public. The cakewalk, developed by slaves as a send-up of their masters' formal dress balls, became the rage. White audiences saw these dancers first in vaudeville shows, then performed by exhibition dancers in the clubs, and of course, in France, these gained traction quickly. That's what drew two of the passengers on board the French biplane involved in this terrible accident. American couple Christopher Bruce Yule and the new Mrs. Mary Yule were on their honeymoon and had travelled to France for a romantic holiday in 1922. They boarded the French aeroplane known as the Farman F-60 Goliath, registration Foxtrot Golf Echo Alpha Delta, piloted by a M. Mide at Le Bourget, and were looking forward to landing in Croydon Airport near London. Little did they know their special honeymoon flight would end in tragedy. The French commercial airline was Compagnie de Grand Express Orient, and it started a daily service between Le Bourget and Croydon. Following World War I, there was a steep decline in demand for military aircraft and their pilots. Like other countries, France and Britain turned to establishing a civilian air industry, initially converting military designs to domestic purposes. Flying in the opposite direction was a Daimler operation that only began the same week. The de Havilland DH-18A biplane was flying mail from Croydon, bound for Le Bourget, with only the pilot who was Lieutenant Ari Duke and a boy's steward known as Hesterman aboard. Both planes took off on the 7th of April 1922, the DH-18A carrying letters and parcels from England to France, and the Goliath carrying three passengers and two crew bound for Croydon. The die was cast. 
One of the curiosities of this accident is just how accurately both pilots were flying. They both followed the normal route, but the problem that day is the weather was bad. There was drizzle and fog, and both planes were flying at exactly the same altitude, 150 meters, or 492 feet. It was a daylight flight, but the visibility was bad. In today's aviation terminology, it would be called an Instrument Meteorological Condition, or IMC, and only instrument-rated pilots would be allowed to fly in such weather. These rules did not exist in 1922. There was also no radar or any way that anyone on the ground could have assisted the two sets of aircrew. It was exciting times for the de Havilland crew in particular. Lieutenant Duke was aware that his company, Daimler Hire, had purchased three other planes. The new de Havilland H-34s were on their way, but in the meantime, he would pilot the DH-18A to France. That service, as I said, had only just commenced on the 2nd of April, 1922. So, flying at 150 metres, which by today's standards is virtually on the ground, it's so low, the Goliath and the DH-18A collided over the town of Tiloy saint anouin that is 110 kilometres north of Paris. The weather was bad, there was mist, the visibility terrible. Suddenly, both aircraft loomed out of the mist and neither had time to take evasive action. During the collision, eyewitnesses on the ground say they saw the DH-18 lose its wing, then dive and crash with the pilot and young boy on board. The Goliath continued flying for a few minutes, according to the same eyewitnesses, but then crashed as well. People on the ground rushed to the two scenes, but all were dead, except for the boy's steward on board the mail plane, the DH-18A. He was critically injured and was rushed to a nearby village, but he died of his injuries there a short time later. The accident, as most are, was avoidable. Both planes had been flying at exactly the same altitude, even though they were travelling in opposite directions. They were not controlled, but had selected the same altitude. Surely this was a problem. It was like having two cars travelling on the same road in opposite directions, but in the same lane. It was obvious that this had to change, and it did. Following the accident, a meeting was held at Croydon Airport by airline representatives from Compagnie des Grands Express Orient, Compagnie des Messagers Orient, Daimler Airway, Handley Page Transport, Instant Airline and KLM, the Dutch airline, as well as representatives from the English Air Ministry. Pilots employed by these companies also attended. The solution came from the Navy and maritime rules. In future, all planes must keep to the right, which became the universal rule of the air. Secondly, all airlines must supply only planes that have a clear view ahead for the pilot and that all airlines should be equipped with radio. But equally importantly, clearly defined air routes were to be introduced in Belgium, France, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. Think of these as imaginary roads in the sky with specific rules about what altitude each route must be flown. And those flying in opposite routes are separated by 1,000 to 2,000 feet. I'll explain more about this in the section at the end called The History of. Today's fantastically well-designed and safe air routes are based on this very first meeting, following the first head-on collision involving commercial airliners in 1922. The second major accident that led to change in the operating procedure and law took place off the English coast in the Channel in 1923. It was only a year after the head-on collision between the Goliath and the de Havilland, and the public knew that this exciting mode of transport was quite dangerous. It was crucial to improve the public's confidence by keeping investigations public. 
What a fantastically magical experience to fly like a bird between two points on the map. That was a miracle when at the time the land was covered with towns and slow-moving carriages and initial cars. The railway was also advanced, but there was a medium that provided quick passage for those with the means. That advance came with a price which was safety. Another de Havilland was going to be involved in this second crash. That's because the manufacturer was in the lead when it came to aircraft production at the time. And the next crash involved a flight from Croydon as well. It was a scheduled domestic passenger flight from Croydon to Manchester, carrying three passengers, two crew. While flying over Buckinghamshire, the plane encountered a storm. Witnesses said they heard one of the engines stop, then restart. The plane headed towards Fort End in Ivanhoe, but suddenly the plane stalled and dived into the ground. The wreckage came to rest upside down, and both crew and all three passengers died. As with the example quoted above, villagers extricated the victims from the wreckage and took them to Ivinghoe Town Hall. An inquest began, led by the local coroner. It opened on the 17th of September 1923 at Ivinghoe Town Hall. At first, the company gave evidence that the pilot was experienced, having flown 755 hours, and that the aircraft was airworthy on departure from Croydon. These days, 755 hours is what is known as a low-hour pilot, with first officers usually having at least 1,500 hours before they're allowed to fly commercially. Of course, this is not always the case, depending on the airline, but this is regarded as the best option. So, in modern terms, the pilot was relatively inexperienced. The de Havilland was carrying an adequate supply of fuel, having departed Croydon with 73 imperial gallons, which is 333 litres of fuel, against an estimated consumption of around 50 imperial gallons, so around 230 litres. So it was well fuelled. The aircraft could carry eight passengers, but as only three were on board, some ballast was carried, as well as a quantity of mail. It was the ballast that interested the inquiry. It comprised a sack weighing 160 kilograms, as well as a large stone weighing 23 kilograms. But all involved agree that both were packed in such a way that they could not move in flight. So the jury returned a verdict of accidental death on all five victims. They agreed with the coroner's suggestion that reports on investigations into aircraft accidents should always be made available to the public, as was then the case with reports into railway accidents. That was something the Times newspaper had called for in its issue published on the 19th September 1923. So we can thank those involved in this unknown accident so long ago for the relative transparency we enjoy in modern aviation. I say relative because last week's podcast shows that some nation states continue to try to keep aviation mistakes a secret. The shooting down of MH17 is an example of just such an attempt. In this section known as the history of in our podcast, we'll look at the flight to the right rule and air routes. So section 91.113 of the Federal Aviation Regulation states that when aircraft of the same category are converging at approximately the same altitude, except head-on or nearly so, the aircraft to the other's right has the right of way. And modern airliners now have something called TCAS or Traffic Collision Avoidance Systems, and these warn pilots when planes are on a collision course and then suggest a mutual avoidance maneuver and even automatically provide this for both planes. One plane climbs, the other descends. When aircraft are approaching each other head-on, or nearly so, each pilot of each aircraft shall alter course to the right. 
And overtaking, each aircraft that is being overtaken has the right of way, and each pilot of an overtaking aircraft has to alter course to the right and pass well clear. Visual flight rules, or VFR, are different from instrument flight rules, or IFR. I'll outline these rules over a few more podcasts in the future, but just to note now that following the Goliath and de Havilland collision, aircraft began to fly to the right of topographical features. In those days, there was no difference between VFR and IFR. Everything was visual. That means landmarks like rivers and roads and even mountains would be traversed to the right of the object. If someone else was following the same road or river or mountain from the opposite direction, they would be flying on the other side, their right. Then there's the odds and evens rule. Visualize the globe as two hemispheres when planes are flying on the compass southwards between true north and 179 degrees or almost exactly due south. They'll fly on what's known as the odds in altitude or odd numbers. So that's 5,000 feet or 7,000 feet or 9,000 feet or 11,000 feet and so on. It gets a little more complex because if you're flying visual rules these days, VFR, then you have to add 500 feet. So you will climb to 5,500 feet, 7,500 feet, 9,500 feet, and so on. If you're flying in a northerly direction or 180 to 359 degrees on that compass, you're flying even numbers, 4,000, 6,000, 8,000, 10,000 feet, and so on. If you're visual, again, you add 500 feet, which is 4,500. 6,500, 8,500, etc., etc. That means the planes are separated by at least 1,000 feet up to 28,000 feet, flight level 280 for the evens and 290 for the odds. Pilots refer to flight levels, so 28,000 feet is flight level 280. 10,000 feet is referred to as flight level 10. After that, Planes are separated by 2,000 feet to ensure extra safety at these high altitudes. There are also air routes in the sky that are invisible lines drawn on special maps. If you're flying between countries and across continents, all planes follow these routes and must report at specific points along those routes. Radar tracks planes along these air routes and helps manage the huge volumes of aircraft flying back and forth. Combined with the evens and odds rule, it means planes are stacked as they fly along these routes so they don't collide. Airspace design is a small miracle in today's world where 22,000 or more planes are in the sky at any one time. Anyway, that's enough science for today. Next week, we'll cover the earliest known airline hijacking, which took place on July 17, 1948. It was the story of the Miss Macau, a Catalina seaplane operated by a Cathay Pacific subsidiary. There were 23 people on board and only one person survived the accident. As we'll hear, the survivor was one of the hijackers. So until next week, aviate, navigate and communicate safely. Music